Poe, if you were here last week, you'll know, you'll know that we looked at Luke chapter 16 and focused just on verse 18. It's a passage on divorce and remarriage. So you can go back and, and watch that online later. But I was commenting last week that uh, if I were just to sit down and determine the topics that we're going to talk about, that, that I probably would be tempted to choose easy topics <laughs> or things that, I, that are, are really comfortable to, to talk about. And I think that we felt that last week, but then the value of going verse by verse, passage by passage through books of the Bible where topics present themselves and we have to talk about them. And today is, is actually no different, that, that Jesus goes into a, from a discussion about divorce and remarriage into a discussion about hell and judgment and death. Uh, and so he's continuing these weighty topics that so often we don't want to think about or we don't want to talk about, but they're crucial for us to consider. And so if you have your Bible, uh, turn to Luke chapter 16. If you don't have your, your Bible with you, uh, you can look this passage up on your phone. Um, the passage is also printed in the order of worship. Again, this is Luke chapter 16, and I'll begin reading in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger into water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, They do not listen to Moses and the prophets. Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's pray. 
Father, we pray that you would guide us as we study your word today, that it would be clear to us that we can understand it, uh, that it would be uh, a light onto our path. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we work our way then, verse by verse, through this passage, look back to the very first verse of the text, verse 19. And I'll read it one more time. There was a rich man clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And so in modern terms, uh, this would be a, a person who would be featured in documentaries of the, the rich and powerful, the successful, the, the people who, who really have it together. It says that he had expensive clothes. He was up on the latest fashion. He feasted every single day. It wasn't just holidays and special uh, events. Uh, and probably because of that, that he was always throwing these lavish parties, uh, he would have been on the upper echelon of society at his time. But then he stands in contrast to the other man in this parable. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, at his gate, and so there again you have a picture of his wealth, that he had a gate to his house or his mansion. And at this gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell for the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And so here you see this poor man at the gate. Uh, he has sores. Maybe he's sick. He could be crippled. He may have something like leprosy. He was literally starving to death. No access to food. No access to shelter. No access to medical care. And it seems that he was being completely ignored by Lazarus or by the rich man inside of this enormous mansion next door. And that his only hope was to get just a crumb that would fall from the rich man's table. But again, the rich man didn't care. The rich man wasn't paying attention to the Old Testament that said that you actually have to care for the, for the poor, for the hungry in your midst. But then look at what happened to both of these men at the moment of death. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And so when we read that, we're not surprised that the poor man died first. And in terms of the, the human reckoning of time, it may have even been long before the rich man died. And he dies, again, without shelter, not being known, no one cares about him. But yet, it says that the, the angels of God take him and carry him to Abraham's side. And, and Abraham, talking about Abraham's side, is this image of Abraham as the, the father of the faithful, the father of those who believe, gathered together in the life to come. And it's interesting that in the Bible, we don't know all that much about the moment of death and what exactly the experience is of somebody who, who dies. But yet here we see something I think that is, is really precious to us that shows us an important truth about death, that at the very moment of death, even if from the outside, from the world looking on, they would say, you're completely alone, nobody cares, that yet God is there, and he's actually guiding us 
from this life to the life to come. And that's why J.C. Ryle, in his commentary in the book of Luke, that I, I quote almost every week because it's just really great. He, oh, he has a lot of good things to say. But, but here he says, We know little or nothing of the state and feelings of the dead. When our own last hour comes, we will lie down to die, and we shall be like those who journey into an unknown country. But it may satisfy us to know that all who fall asleep in Jesus are in good keeping. They are not houseless, homeless wanderers between the hour of death and the day of resurrection. They are at rest in the midst of friends with all who have had like faith with Abraham. They have no lack of anything. And best of all, St. Paul tells us that they are with Christ. And that's our comfort as believers, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that to, to live is Christ and, and to die is gain. But sadly, according to Scripture, that isn't true for everyone. Because look at verse 22. Jesus says, The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And so you see that, that there's this complete and utter reversal of what everyone expected. That if, you, if I said to you, you know, who had the best deal here? Who would you want to be, the, the rich man or Lazarus? Well, in one sense, if you were looking at this life, you would want to be the rich man. But if you're looking at the, the life to come, you would want to be Lazarus because, because everything is flipped upside down. All of the expectation, the man who had everything, who would have been known, who would have been respected, he's, he's not even given a name in the parable. He's just called a rich man. He kind of becomes this generic person. But then the poor man who had nothing, who no one knew, he gets the name in the parable. He's the one who ends up in, in joy of life with God forever. And so again, he gets the best deal. And even if you take his suffering into account, because if you were to take 70 or 80 years and you put it on a scale, and one side of the scale is 70 or 80 years, the other side of the scale is eternity with God, that, that the 70 or 80 years doesn't even compute compared to eternity, that, that it's like taking, 80 years is like taking a drop of water and dropping it into the ocean, that, that there's, you don't even notice a difference. And that's both how much joy and suppose happiness the rich man had before an eternity of sorrow, and it's also probably how much the, the poor man had before an eternity of, of life and joy. So again, who really got the better deal? And I think that, is, that if we think about those who are in heaven, even those who have experienced extreme suffering in this life or whose life was tragically cut short, that, that the, the pain and the sorrows of this life, they're, yes, they're, they're real. Yes, uh, they are tragic. But I doubt that there is hardly even a remembrance of it. And for, and for Lazarus at, at uh, Abraham's side, that probably the, the miseries of his short time on earth 
would feel like a bad dream, but it's something that he wouldn't really have to think about because he, there was so much joy with God getting better and better and better for all eternity. And that's why the Apostle Paul says that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And that's how Christ wants us to live, in light of the eternal. Because if this life is really all there is, if it's we die, we cease to be, uh, that, that our life consists of your, your birth date and your death date, and that's the extent of the, the meaning of your life, then the, the phrase YOLO, you only live once, kind of holds true, where why not live for yourself? Why not try to just have as much joy and happiness in life here for yourself uh, because this is all you have? But then if the opposite's true, if there really is a heaven and a hell, and if there really is an eternity, uh, then rather than living for ourselves, we're called to, to live for, for God. Rather than living for ourselves, we, we live for our neighbors to say, what does it look like for me to serve the people around me? Because that's actually something that has eternal value, not just looking out for number one. And you remember a few weeks ago, we looked at the, the parable of the dishonest manager at the very beginning of Luke chapter 16. And you remember that Jesus said this when he was applying that parable, verse 9 of chapter 16. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And we talked about that what that means, but it's completely illustrated in this parable here today, that here was this rich man with unrighteous wealth, and instead of using that unrighteous wealth for the kingdom of God, instead of using it, it says, to make friends for yourself, uh, to, to serve Lazarus, who is at his gate, to serve the, the widow and the orphan, instead of doing that, he just kind of hoarded it up, tried to seek his own pleasure, his own happiness. And where he may have actually been greeted by Lazarus entering, entering into heaven. Uh, that that could have been the end of the story of, hey, this is the guy that, that I was able to serve and care for. And he's there when I enter into the, the, the joy of life. But instead, the rich man is actually left out completely, entering into judgment. And I think that that should be a sobering warning for each and every one of us here. But of course, at this point then, as we're following our way through this parable, you might think that Jesus could end it there, that that's a, the parable's done, we have our main application. But Jesus really has several applications in this parable, and then he switches gears with the parable and the Lazarus, the poor man, somewhat fades out of the, the narrative. And then we hone in on the rich man. And he's in hell. He's looking up into heaven. He sees 
Lazarus, he sees Abraham, and he makes two requests from hell. And so look at that first request in in verse 24. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and, and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in the flames. So if you really pay attention to what he's saying, he still doesn't get it. Even in hell, he's, he's still focused on himself. He's not repenting of his sin. He's not telling Lazarus that he's sorry for not caring for him, for not noticing him, for not serving him as he was commanded to in the Old Testament. But he still actually seems to almost have the mindset that, that Lazarus is the servant, that Lazarus is the one who should be serving him. Because he says, basically, Abraham, you know, tell that guy Lazarus to come down here and give me a drop of water to cool my tongue. Tell him to serve me here. But look at how Abraham responds in verse 25. Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things. Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And so, in these words, with the the request of the rich man and the answer of Abraham, we can start to, to piece together really important lessons about the biblical concept of hell. And the first thing we see is that, according to this text, according to Jesus, hell is real. And I find that that sometimes people don't like talking about the idea of hell because it seems cruel or it seems negative, or it just seems like something where this is ancient people who were trying to scare others into following their beliefs, that it's a form of manipulation. And I've even had people tell me that they would never go to a church that talks about hell. But of course, that's that's a hard thing to, to say because Jesus himself, the head of the church, talks about the reality of hell more than anyone else in the Bible. He came back to it many, many times in his ministry. And he wasn't trying to scare people. He wasn't trying to be sensational. He wasn't trying to be cruel or unloving, but really that whether or not it's unloving and unkind to talk about hell depends a lot about whether it's real or not. And you can think about it like any kind of warning, that if, if you were with someone who is blind and you just played a joke on them and said, oh, be careful, there's a cliff when they're crossing the street, that would be cruel, that would be unkind. But if there really is a cliff and somebody doesn't see it, and you tell them, watch out, there's a cliff, don't fall off of that, that it's really there, then stating that, reminding people of reality, is far from being unkind or to be cruel. It would actually be more unloving, more cruel, to remain silent of the nature of reality. And that's the way it is with the biblical concept of hell. 
And no, it's not just our, our stereotypical view that we get from cartoons and TV shows. But Jesus isn't a liar. He's not lying about this. He wasn't a lunatic. He wasn't just convinced by the religious teaching of his time. And therefore, he's, he's telling the truth. And we need to, to listen and pay attention to what he has to say, that hell is real. But also, according to our text, it's not only real, but terrifying. Because look at the way that Jesus describes it. Torment, verse 23. Flame, verse 24. Anguish, verse 25. Place of torment, verse 28. That it's a, it's a terrifying reality. And that what, what Jesus envisions here, even in this parable, is a place of conscious torment, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, there are people, um, believers, who talk about uh, what's called annihilationism, or in the name of Christianity, will say that, that the idea of hell as a place of conscious torment is, again, cruel, unkind, that a, a loving, merciful God would never do that. And so what they'll say is that that really what, what, what hell is, is ceasing to exist. Um, that, that that's what the judgment of God is. And I've had many conversations with people who, who hold this view. And in some of those conversations, I'll actually point to this parable, to, to Luke 16, and say, well, look at this picture that Jesus is giving us here of the reality of judgment in hell. And one of the things that they'll usually say in those conversations is that, well, it's a parable. And one of the principles of reading a parable is that you can't press every detail of a parable. That usually there's a main thrust to a parable. And that what Jesus is doing, they'll say, uh, is that he's taking a hypothetical scenario um, to illustrate a point. In a similar way that you might tell, you know, the a joke about somebody, two people show up at the pearly gates and they're talking to uh, St. Peter. Sometimes we'll talk that way that we're picking up on colloquial ways of describing reality, but not trying to teach necessarily a doctrine of hell. And in a way, I think that there's some truth in that, the idea that you can't press every detail in a parable. Because I think that what Jesus is describing here is something that is outside of our experience, something that is mysterious, uh, something that, that, that can't be put fully into words in this life, that though when, we, when it's experienced, we'll know what it is. So I don't know necessarily that there'll be conversations between heaven and hell or that someone from hell will literally be able to, to look into heaven as we see in the, the parable. But yet that doesn't mean that what Jesus is showing here is not true or isn't real. Because I think that there are some scenarios, hypothetical scenarios, that he wouldn't have used. Would Jesus have used a hypothetical scenario of reincarnation to illustrate a point, if that's not true? Or if the idea of conscious judgment away from the presence of the Lord is just cruel and unkind and unfitting of the holy and righteous, loving God of the Bible, then again, why would Jesus use it as an illustration here? 
that that almost that seems strange to pick up on something if it's if it's not true. So I think that what that draws us to is that what Jesus is describing here, yes, it's mysterious. Yes, it's using language that that is, is simplified for our understanding, but yet he's describing something true about reality, that, that he's describing something that we need to pay attention to, that we need to, to listen to, that we need to remember as we're seeking to live our lives today in light of, of eternity, that there, there is judgment apart from God. And so we've said that, that hell is real, that it's terrifying. But according to our text here, it's also final. And this is also something that is often hard to, to swallow uh, if we're not really looking at the words of Scripture and taking the Bible seriously. Because he says to Abraham, send Lazarus to cool my tongue. And you say, well, that seems like a legitimate request. But then Abraham actually refuses his request. And that the, the, the rationale that Abraham gives is that there is a finality to life after death. That there's a finality to, to heaven and that there's a finality to, to hell. He says that, that none can pass from there to here. This isn't purgatory. Um, none can pass from here to there. That the, the, the opportunity to, to repent and to, to change has passed. And we know what this is like in life because there are times where you want to apply to a certain school and then the deadline passes and it's too late. Or you, you want to buy something online at a discounted rate and then you wait too long, the discount is gone, it's too late. Or something that probably many experienced a few months ago where you, you, know, you want to buy toilet paper at the beginning of a global pandemic uh, or stock up on canned goods or flour and then you go and it's too late, that, that the day has passed to be able to, to get it. And that's the, the reality in scripture of, of heaven and hell, that there's, there's a finality to it, that there, there will come a time when it's too late, where repentance and faith is no longer an option. And rather than being troubled by that, that, that our, our call then is actually to to remember that, that today is always the day of salvation. That questions of, of heaven and hell and salvation and, then, and who is God and who is Christ and, um, and is there life after death, that those questions uh, shouldn't be put off for another day. Uh, it's not something like, well, I really should eventually get life insurance, but I'm going to kind of push that, that aside. But, it, but it's something that, that, that even more urgent than anything else in life to cons consider before it's too late. And so that's the, the first request then that, that Lazarus makes from, or sorry, that um, the rich man makes from hell. But then look at verse 18, because he makes a second request. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. So what is the rich man saying? Well, again, this is showing that he doesn't really get it. 
Even here, he doesn't get the nature of spiritual reality. Because there is a famous atheist, uh, Bertrand Russell, who, who said that, that if he ended up dying and then found out that he was wrong and God actually existed, that he would tell God, God, not enough evidence. You never gave me enough evidence. I never had enough reason to believe. So, the, so you can't judge me because it's your fault that I'm here because you didn't give me enough. And that's essentially what the rich man is saying. He's saying, not enough evidence that if I had known, if anyone had told me, if anyone had made this clear, then I would have repented, I would have served Lazarus, I would have changed my ways, I would have been different. And even though there's finality to where I am now, maybe there's still hope for my brothers. Maybe you can send someone to tell them, warn them, lest they also end up here with me. But look at what Abraham says in verse 29. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And so again, he's saying, Send someone else. Warn them. Send somebody back from the dead. Because if somebody comes from here to there and they're warned, then they'll have enough evidence. Then they'll really believe. Then they'll know that it was all true and that they should have lived their life in light of eternity and not of, of self. But what Abraham is saying is that, well, they have the Old Testament. They have the law. They have the prophets. They have the scriptures. And that is enough. The, the, that makes the scriptures necessary and sufficient and, and clear. And that they should have paid attention to the scriptures that they already had. And let's think about that. What, what we see about the nature of scripture here in this text. That we see in the, the words of Abraham the necessity of scripture. Because that was something that Abraham proclaims, but yet the rich man didn't believe. He didn't live like the Bible was really necessary for his life. What was necessary was his fine clothes. What was necessary was his, his parties. What was necessary was his enormous mansion and the enormous gate. Those were the things that he cared about, but he didn't care about the, the scripture that told him to repent or the scripture that told him to, to care for the weak and the marginalized, the, the widow, the orphan, the fatherless, the, the scripture that care, told him to care for the, the poor and the hungry at his very gate. He ignored the word of God as a child of Abraham. And look where he ended up. And it can be the same for us, that we have... the the scriptures. We have the words of the Old Testament. We have the words of the New Testament. And that it's the, the word of God, the scriptures that, that show us the nature of God, his holiness and his righteousness. It's the scriptures that, that bring the conviction of sin to, to show us that we don't line up to his standard. It's the, the scriptures that, that show us the way of salvation, that there's actually is hope. There's a way of salvation that God hasn't left us alone, that the talking about hell and judgment isn't the last word because Jesus came to actually take hell on himself in our place 
so that we can be forgiven to take the, the holy, righteous wrath of God against sin. That's what we learn from the Bible. That's how we grow. But yet we ignore it. We act like the Bible isn't important. And so we see the necessity of Scripture here. But we also see the sufficiency of the Bible. Because the, the rich man here in hell thought there's not enough evidence. I didn't know. And, and that's why he thinks that, that really what you need is something in addition to the Bible. That the Bible isn't enough in and of itself. But look at Abraham is saying, no, I'm not going to send somebody else. I'm not going to send somebody else from the other side because the scriptures, the Old Testament at that point, the law and the prophets are sufficient. They're sufficient to know how to live, to sufficient to know who God is, the way of salvation that you don't need in addition to it. But if you look at the history of Christianity, for some reason Christians are always looking for something else in addition to the authority of Scripture, of saying, well, here's a prophet who will interpret Scripture for me, or here's the, the church that will really help me understand Scripture, or here's a, here's a book or a story about some supernatural event, and now I really know what is true where the Bible itself wasn't enough. And I, I've seen that even in conversations about a book that came out a few years ago called uh, Heaven is for Real, about a little boy who uh, supposedly died and went to heaven and then saw heaven and then came back and talked about it and described it. And kind of the point of the book is, well, now we know that, that heaven is for real. Because look, here's somebody who, who went to the other side, came back, and told us about it. But the problem with things like that is that in Scripture, there, there's no example of somebody, a mere human, going to heaven, coming back, and then telling us what heaven is like. Even the people who Jesus raised from the dead didn't do that. Uh, but then also, what Abraham is saying here is, is no, I'm not going to send somebody else from the other side to describe what it's like because you have the Scriptures. You, you have enough that there's a sufficiency to the Scripture that if we want to know heaven is for real, we can look at Jesus, we can look at the Word of God, that it is sufficient in itself, um, that, that, that ultimately that's what we, we need most. And that's why the Apostle Paul says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. That he doesn't say that the Scriptures equip us for some good works, but that they equip us for every good work, that there's a sufficiency to the Bible. And so we've said that it's necessary, it's sufficient, but also we see here the, the clarity of Scripture. Because when Abraham says, well, let them pay attention to the Scriptures, he's not saying, well, yeah, you're right. Your, your brothers, they, they haven't had the time to go get PhDs in biblical studies, or, you know, you're right, they have the Old Testament and they have the scripture, but that's so hard to understand. Ordinary people can't read it. You know, it's really just up to an elite few to read and, and interpret the, the scriptures. Um, but no, he says, they have the scriptures. Let them 
pay attention to them because they are not only sufficient, but they're, they're clear. And their theologians have a, a fancy word for this called the perspicuity of Scripture. And I always find it really funny that the word that theologians use to say that the Bible can be understood by everyone is perspicuity, uh, that no one knows. <laughs> uh, but it's an important doctrine because what it's saying is that the, the Bible doesn't just belong to an elite few. That, that's part of the reason that, that we'll say, open your Bible, look at this. So that's why we're moving text verse by verse through this because it can be read and understood by people in the pew. It doesn't mean that, that you understand everything. It doesn't mean that the Bible tells us everything that we want to know. But the Bible tells us everything that we need to know about God, about salvation, about how to live in this life, that it's, it's sufficient, it's necessary, it's true, that we don't look for a secret code or, or for some sort of, of secret teaching that we unlock from a, a New York Times bestseller book that gives the secret that no one knows because it's New York Times bestseller list. Uh, that, that what we have is, is openly proclaimed truth about God that is sufficient. But as we wrap up then today, look one more time at the last verse, verse 31. Abraham says, if they do not believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone were to, come, were to rise from the dead. And I think as we read that, we can't help but think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that, that he did come, live a perfect life, die a sacrificial death, that, that as he went to the cross, he took the whole weight of hell on himself. That's why even when we read the Apostles' Creed earlier, we said that he descended into hell, that he took the judgment of God, the full weight of it in our place, and that when we repent and when we trust in Christ, we are united to him by faith. And, and what we have is, is we're called to repent and trust in him. To experience salvation is not something that's probably true, where we can say it's it's not enough evidence, but when we have the, the testimony of the Old Testament, clear and true, we have the testimony of the resurrection, this well-attested historical event where Jesus appeared to the disciples and to the women who had followed him. And Paul tells us that he appeared to more than 500 people at one time, yet some didn't believe. And we have the testimony of the, of the New Testament interpreting the life, death, and resurrection to us that we have so much evidence and so as we think, how do we escape the fate of the rich man in this text? How do we have confidence to face the moment of death? And for the rich man, it wouldn't have been enough for him simply to say, oh, I was, doing so I was on the wrong path. Now I'm going to start giving money to the poor. I'm going to open a, a charity and just give everything away, and that's all I'm going to do. He should have done that. <laughs> but yet... Our actions in and of themselves are not enough for salvation because they can't outweigh what we've done. And that's why the call and the good news of Scripture is so strong where he says that, that Jesus takes our punishment, gives us his life as we're united to him, that he bears our punishment, that we're saved through faith in him apart from our own works. And then from that position of being forgiven, of knowing what will happen when we die, that it's the angels that will carry us to Abraham's side, to the very presence of Christ, to know that with certainty. And then from there, you can start to actually live today in light of eternity, where you really then can 
care for those around you, serve those around you, not just live for yourself because you know the hope and the promise that we have through God's word. Let's pray.